This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go, do you want me to go f***ing flash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. Hello, movie lovers, and welcome to Film versus Film, the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hold up, and which film will end up on the cutting room floor? Today, we're looking at two groundbreaking horror films from the year 1960. Both films ushered in new eras of what was acceptable in the world of cinema, from morals and censorship to form and the representation of serial killers to the complicity of the audience and whether or not it is okay to flush a toilet on the screen. One film destroyed the director's career and the other cemented the director as the greatest auteur of the 20th century. Because I agree with I that. No, it's not a big call. It's not a big call. I mean, it wouldn't, that position wouldn't be shared by, I think, a lot of critics. Mm. But I think history has said that's true. All right. Today, we're looking at Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho versus Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. I'm filmmaker and mama's boy, Craig Anderson. <laughs> and today, I'm joined by my two best friends from high school, resident cinephile and man with a movie camera hidden under his coat. It's Herschel Isaacs. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Bruce. A great pairing today because one movie, the most known perhaps of all the movies... Uh, the other one, unknown. Mm, kind of mm. weird. All right. Really interesting. We're also joined by the Norma to his Norman. It's Herschel's <laughs> <laughs> identical twin brother and associate professor of film at the University of Sydney, Bruce Isaacs. I actually prefer to be Mark out of Peeping Tom than Norman. Because I love Mark. I'm so putting much. you down as Norma, though. I'm saying Norma. you're. A, oh my god! I'm, I'm saying Norma. you're a fictional character inside his head. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> All right, as we love to remind our listeners, we grew up together in the suburbs of Western Sydney, and we like to shout out to some of the milestones in our life that made us love film. This time. I'd love to cast your minds back to that time in year nine when the school was buzzed with the catchphrase, I'll be back, as James Cameron broke the brains of every special effects loving nerd in the world with his 1991 film, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. All right, look, the, <laughs> the concept of hype yeah. during our high school mm. starts and ends with Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Yes. Yeah. Now, the reason I'm going to say that in is movies. because... In movies, yeah. Because okay. it also transferred over to things like Michael Jackson, black and white. No, hang on. I want to say something about that. What do you because think? Because special effects. But also, yeah. we had the Olympic announcement of Sydney winning. Sydney. <laughs> remember, oh, and that the winning was such a moment. God, yeah. can you remember we Sydney. all got up? Yeah, we all went we crazy. We all literally yeah. got up at well, like 5.30 in the morning. Actually, you know what? When I, I, I remember going into mum and dad's room earlier than I go, yeah, we want it. They go... Oh, all right then. <laughs> that was it. All I right. couldn't believe it. Could you shut the door behind you? <laughs> I want to go back to Terminator for a second yeah. because do you know where our, I guess, insane interest in the special effect, in the morphing mm-hmm. came mm-hmm. from? It came from Glenn David because yeah, Glenn because David of, of Michael Jackson, uh-huh. he was going, Wait. it's a million dollars a second yeah. and um, nobody's ever seen this before in the history of the world. And we go, all right, Glenn, that's Can cool, Can you man. believe that? Glenn David a- is, was a char- uh, uh, another person from our school. And he was, he was a character. A, <laughs> he was a character. He's now a reverend. Yeah. Yeah, but he, uh, <laughs> he was very much 
Michael Jackson's biggest fan. He was a huge fan. Michael Jackson. Oh, yes. And remember, was he behind MC Hammer's... Uh, he hated MC Hammer. He was, he was anti MC he was Hammer anti because MC Hammer, because MC Hammer mm. tried to take the glove I'm off Michael. Get that remember, because yeah. MC Hammer on the, the video of, for um, Too Legit to Quit. Yes, and I think you can't touch this. Yes. Doesn't he put the hand? No, no, it's, up it's, it's Too Legit to Quit. At the end, end quit. he's yeah. sitting the there and he's got a glove on his hand, which is and Glenn would come up and say, "You see that? That is a dig at Michael Jackson. It's it's a comment against yeah, Michael like Jackson. Like I now have the glove. But Glenn oh, would say brother. this with tremendous analysis. He'd go, "Yeah, but explain to me where where is the innovation? Like that Michael yeah. Scott. He would, and would go, oh, I don't know, Glenn. All right. Yeah, I mean, he wore parachute pants. He danced on the sidewards. <laughs> I don't know why. It's very catchy that you can't touch but, this. Okay, but Glenn was excited because in that film clip, Black and White, which I remember went on air yes. with Richard Wilkins doing a one-hour. No, no, Molly, Molly Meldrum. Meldrum. Was Molly, Molly Meldrum. Oh, of course it was. Molly Meldrum presenting yeah. it on a, an afternoon after school. And, and I can tell you now that played. every one of us, yes. everyone in the whole class, everyone we knew and hung out with, was watching that at seven o'clock that night, yeah, yeah, and yeah. why? Why could it only be aired at seven o'clock? Because the original thing oh, where Molly right. introduced it, it had to go past eight o'clock for Michael's raunchy, quite you know, provocative the, dance yeah, that had no music, yeah, and yeah. and he was dancing in the alleyway. Remember? Yes. But do you, I loved watching Molly afterwards, as if he'd never seen it before, trying to explain what was happening in that alleyway. Because for people who don't remember the end of the film clip, it's a film clip with Macaulay Culkin, already yeah. a little strange. Um, <laughs> and then he breaks into his house and goes, "Yo, dude, let's party!" And then they do and a it's got dance. Norm from Cheers. Yeah, he and goes, like, "What is going on?" He goes on? all around Norm. the world. At the end, he at the end of the morphing, Michael morphs, and then this is the the famous sequence of a lot of morphing, and it was yeah. very new to us. But at the end, he walks out of the studio, turns into a jaguar, a jaguar, <laughs> jaguar. Yeah. Walks away. and then but before that, off. No, before that, he also takes up a crowbar and smashes a car up. Yeah. And then Molly's sitting there trying to explain to the viewers what just happened. But it's a special I time in this we, music. When though. we cut back to Molly, <laughs> Molly had this face of such gravity, yes. right? Like it was yeah. like, wow, well, we've seen something. One of the here. amazing theories he had was that there was a neon sign in the background yeah. and the letters could be arranged to uh, LaToya. And he's saying that is a dig at Latoya, at Latoya and his because sister because she posed in Playboy. In Playboy. Like Michael, some moral crusade. <laughs> oh, I mean, man. It, it, was, it was a special time because I don't know if it was our age or, or what it was, but we looked forward to moments in the media like this. Back on Determinator 2, that was coming out and it was using yeah. the same morphing technology and everyone was losing their minds yes. at the footage we were seeing on, you know, in previews. All the previews. We were so excited. Now, Terminator 2 was coming out on a Thursday as all movies got released on a Thursday. The Saturday before... Bruce, you and I, with mum and dad, went to Parkley Markets. We bought, oh, that's right. we bought that wooden poster of <laughs> yes. Terminator 2 we had on our Judgment Day. And do you remember, I, I had this weird thing, right? I looked at the poster and I go, wait a second, haven't they spelt the word judgment wrong? And then I remember calling dad in and going, how come there's no E in judgment over there? And it turned out, in the United States, they don't spell it's it with the an American E. Spelling. It was fine. Having said that, did you um, were you worried it was a Parkley knockoff? No, like <laughs> no <laughs> never. Surely wait, not. Surely just not. can I say something about Parkley Markets? Yeah, I yeah. hope that on one of these episodes one day we all get a chance to talk about Parkley Markets. Well, that meant so much to it me. It was a, a large local a market in Western outdoor, Sydney. Well, they had a shed. They had a shed, and it was massive. It was a place. Westerns, yeah, it was it a was place Westerns where dreams Sydney. came Parkland, true. Yeah. It was brilliant. Now, the, okay, so Terminator 2, you got Arnold Schwarzenegger glasses. I got sun, uh, the black sunglasses. I got them at the Easter show the following Did Easter. Yeah. So, yeah. so we were so into this movie. Now, the other thing that sticks with me and will stick with me till forever <laughs> is Matthew Schoen, a friend of ours in school. <laughs> oh, yeah. If was. There was, if there was a person who was coming close to the excitement that we had, it was Schoen, yeah. all right? But now, also, I, can I explain that Schoen was... 
almost as large as Arnie. He was. He <laughs> but he also had the flat top. He, he had, the flat, he had a yeah. flat top. Big. <laughs> he looked like um. Oh, what's Red Dawn? Like Arnie and Red Dawn. He had that. No, Raw same, Deal. Raw Deal. Raw, sorry, yeah, Raw yeah. Deal. But he was also strong. He was into weight. And, and he was. He really admired Arnold. And yeah. I think he loved Pumping Iron. Yeah. The the documentary. Now I just want to cut to. And we can talk about going to the movies and that, which was a major. It was a definitive uh, definitive event for us. But I want to say on the Monday morning we came back to school and <laughs> I, I was I know what you're going to say yeah I'm walking up the stairs <laughs> now for our listeners there the way it worked is you'd enter the building you walk up this blue staircase right in front of you was the library but you would filter off left or right to the class that you were going to um, we should say it was like a block like an American yeah. high school it was a big yeah. circular big octagon circle, yeah. building with, with classes you walked uh, up the stairs uh, it was called E Block at St Clair yes. High School shout out all man. right Shoney's coming up the stairs <laughs> and he comes over and he goes. All right, so what do you all think? Because everybody knows that yeah, you saw and it on the first week. Anyone who was serious to see the movie, mm-hmm. yeah. And and I remember <laughs> us saying it was good, but I was expecting more, and he lost it. Yeah, he just absolutely went off. Went I just remember you, you said he, he went something like, "Why? It was perfect. It could not be better than it, than that wow. movie." And wow. you know what his parting so line funny. was? You it know was what so his, charming as his well. His parting line was, "You're all effed in the head." That's what he said. <laughs> Did he say F or did he, he swear? No, he swore. He okay, swore. He said, yeah, because he was so angry. I now think it's one of the greatest action movies of all time. See, I've not been able to make peace with that movie. I still think it's a really flawed movie. Serious? Yeah. Wow. So you know that, no, that thing off the show? Because I remember being there. We were standing there. And we were just going, like, yeah, it's good. It's very good. But it's not great, is it? And then... What does he say, Cal? Oh, no. Hasta la vista. Hasta la vista, baby. Oh, my God. When he puts his thumb up, it's so I can't stand the... John Connor, for example. So yeah. He just pulls me out of the movie. And I and I struggle to get back in. Oh, I think a lot of people had a crush on John Connor, though. He was like... A what? Cool... Yeah, Edward Furlong Edward, in that movie. Everyone had like a, a inspiration. My partner, Kathy, had a huge crush on yeah, Furlong. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, I would never have guessed that. Huge but crush. But he's a... Ter- he, okay, firstly, he's... Maybe okay. the worst child actor in history. I'm scared that Shoney's going to come into this room and start <laughs> chucking a table at you. <laughs> I will say one you know, thing. It does have an emotional place in my heart, which is subsequent to us viewing it as younger people. And that's because one day I'm sitting there with Lockie watching Terminator 2. The first time, what is it, two and a half hours now with the director's mm, yeah. cut. And when Schwarzenegger's finger <laughs> comes up when he's going down into the lava. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's the first time I've seen Lockie have an emotive response to a oh, film. Oh, that's and nice. He started crying. He didn't broke you? down. He broke down. It was his sh- shinless list, so to it speak. It was <laughs> from a couple of episodes back. All right, I want to tell you, I was jealous of your poster. I remember you got that poster. Yeah. So I got one for Christmas, but it was like off the the Stars Rock movie poster um, shop in the city. It cost like a hundred bucks. It was the bit most expensive present I ever got. Jesus. It was a double sided one that so it could go into glass at movie cinemas. You know, it was like a Whoa, proper poster. Fantastic. I loved that poster, and I also bought the X rental VHS tape at Civic Video St. Clair for $25 uh, like you know a year yeah, after yeah, it had yeah. been out oh that's uh, great yeah. and do you remember the cover of it Schwarzenegger mm-hmm. the motorbike but yeah. the red eyes in the background yes. oh, it was brilliant alright there it is Terminator 2 Judgment Day all the way back when we were in year 9 in 1991 a lot of memories man. let's move on as always today's episode will feature spoilers for the two films so if you haven't watched Psycho stop immediately as, as there are two and I, I, I count them too, amazing plot twists that we don't want to spoil for you. If other films come up incidentally as we speak, we promise not to spoil them as, as best we can. All right, let's get into it. Take one. First up on today's show, and only by a matter of a couple of months, it's Peeping Tom from 1960. 
British director Michael Powell had carved out a prolific career as a journeyman director of UK dramas and genre pieces. Then, during the 1940s and 50s, he was responsible for some very original films like the enchanting ballet-based The Red Shoes and The Towels of Hoffman. But in 1960, he took on a new radical direction for his auteurship with the film Peeping Tom. The story follows a camera-obsessed individual who loves to film both murder and fear in the faces of his victims. The character of Mark Lewis, as portrayed by the German actor Karl Baum, lives on the top floor of a large British residence where he keeps many cameras and reels of film. He becomes obsessed with a young tenant who develops a crush on him by the name of Helen, played by Alan Massey. During the course of the movie, we discover that our protagonist's pathological tendencies are a fault of his psychotherapist's father, who terrorised him as a young boy. As the police close in, Mark has trouble differentiating his love and desire to murder Helen, so decides to kill himself whilst filming it to provide an ending for his autobiographical documentary. The movie is rich with colours and features a multitude of points of views, formats and film stocks. Sometimes we are watching through the viewfinder, sometimes off the projected screen. It deals with sophisticated notions of intertextuality and voyeurism whilst traversing themes as transgressive as murder, medical ethics, parental responsibility, desire and fear. Essentially, 1960 was in no way ready for this film. It failed to find an audience in any market around the world and was censored harshly by British classifiers. It tanked the director's career, who found himself later in that decade in Australia directing the cult classic migrant comedy, They're a Weird Mob. Well, when a bloke buys your beer, it's called a shout, see? Now, I shouted you, now it's your turn to shout for me. Oh. I'm sorry, but I think I do not wish to drink another beer. Now, listen, in this country, if you want to keep out of trouble, you always return a shout, see? In the decades that followed, the likes of Martin Scorsese openly declared their love for the film and it has had a positive critical resurgence in the last few decades. Bruce, I know you've taught this to undergrads, so what's your point of view on Peeping Tom? Yeah, great introduction, Craig. And uh, like you said, Herschel, these are two fascinating films, both 1960 within a couple of months of each other. Weirdly, both in some sense related to what would become the slasher film, Mm. right? Um, I really like what you said about the strange contradiction in this movie. So number one, it is true this movie killed Michael Powell's career. (laughs) That is not exaggeration on our part. Like I've done a bit of research on this movie. It's hard to explain what Powell – so Michael Powell did a bunch of movies with his partner Pressburger. It's hard to explain the importance of the Powell and Pressburger filmmaking team, not only in the British tradition, but in like the whole of global cinema, including Hollywood. So the movie Craig described, he identified The Red Shoes. Mm. The Red Shoes is probably now one of the most admired films ever made. I love that movie. It's just, you know, like you watch it and your eyes are like just stunned by, by the beauty of it, right? Um, A Matter of Life and Death is another film you made very famous, this crazy melodrama, but kind of set the tone for it. Then, weirdly, he wants to make one of the strangest, (laughs) unpredictable serial killer films in the British tradition. So what I thought I'd do is there were a whole lot of uh, contemporary responses to the movie. Because, like, okay, I've just said it, it killed his career. Why? Well, okay, listen to this. 
The London Tribune in 1960, quote, the only really satisfactory way to dispose of Peeping Tom would be to shovel it up and flush it swiftly down the nearest sewer. What? That's a legitimate review piece on this movie. So we're not talking about a moment in which critics are saying it's not a good film. They're talking about this film is wrong. Mm-hmm. Like it's a completely different approach to what the role of filmmaking should be. So that's something I really want to talk about in relation but to this movie. But it's interesting you say this because I've got – I'm going to start when I when we come on to Psycho with a couple of things that were said about Psycho when it was released. And I, I wonder if not – and I'm going to go into this briefly as well – if not for Hitchcock's um, leverage that he's got at this mm-hmm. point, mm-hmm. it could have been a hell of a lot worse for Psycho than the initial reaction to it. Mike, Mike Powell didn't have an opportunity to get out of this. You know, he was... I mean, th- this is the, the, you know, okay, yes, it could have gone differently. Okay. But one point I do want to make is that Peeping Tom is such a different film to Psycho. Like, yeah, I've said that they're related. They're both precursors to the slasher movie. They're both 1960. They both have a serial killer in them. That said, they are almost polar opposites in the way they treat this material. And I think that accounts a lot for why the Powell film just tanks... And the Daily Express writes, <laughs> quote, the film was more nauseating and depressing than the leper colonies of East Pakistan. What? The back streets of Bombay and the gutters and the gutters of Calcutta. That, that was that was a, bringing I mean, poor old Pakistan with I mean, the it's, hell. it's horribly racist as well, but like the film was more nauseating and depressing than the leper colonies of East Pakistan. So immediately you're relating the movie to some kind of filthiness. Like, the film is dirty, mm. right? And that was a major response to this movie. This is a dirty movie, right? This is a movie that's deviant, it's disrespectful, it should not be seen by people who are self-respecting can, film can I, viewers. Can I say one thing that I think would have really messed with people back then as well was I only saw this 10 years ago, my first viewing, because I discovered a book by Alex Hellier Nichols, yeah. Nichols sorry, yes. who we love, and she wrote a book called Found Footage Horror Films. Yep. And this was like a whole chapter, and it's amazing. And I watched it, and I was like, the form of it is also confronting. It's, it's not and just like nothing the story. Seen, it's like... Right? It's like back back then uh, it would be like watching a movie by a serial killer because yep. the form is so it's Actually, doing I like that. it's sort of moving into as you say Alex's book found film mm, snuff found film yeah. found footage mm. the snuff film these sorts of transgressive ways of doing things it's like Michael Powell said the oh, whole this I'm going to pull out all the stops yeah. and see where this gets me well it didn't get him very far then I just want to add to that as well because interestingly and I don't know how the hell this happened but the first time I saw this movie was three weeks ago. I've told you that I'm brand new to this movie. Mm, you only right. saw this three weeks yes, ago. Oh, exactly. wow. Okay. Now, I saw it late at night. And when I started watching it, because you both had told me, look, this is, this is, this is a big deal. Yeah, and yeah. I still don't know how I didn't see it. But I think it's one of the most innovative things I've seen. It's astonishing. And yeah. it's one of those rare things where if you can find something that's so interesting that you've never seen before at this late stage, yeah. it's pretty unbelievable. Uh, but it's, 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 it's pretty it's amazing. Fantastic. I hope the yeah. people at home who are listening oh, have you got watched to watch it. That was my first thought. Yeah. My first thought was, okay, if you're listening to this, there's, and a, you've there's not a pretty seen good go chance watch it. you haven't yeah. seen it. Now, if you haven't seen it, and if in any way you like horrors or thrillers, or you like, and what I'm going to talk about, that very contained kind of, of thriller, 
you were going to have a hell of a time with this movie. Yeah. But um, I wonder, I get scared that it's lost to audiences only because, like, now you could make this with TikTok Live. You know, yeah. you could make a, a, a comparable video where it's, like, following someone murdering and shooting. Well, let's not put and the ideas into it. the heads no, of no, people, no. Craig. So do it, do it, do it. <laughs> okay. But I think that now watching the film stock and the reels and the viewfinder, I'm like, oh, I wonder if modern audiences or younger than us will yep. get what those things are. Well, so this is what I wonder as well, right? Because I came to this movie through like um, film studies, I yeah. think. I didn't watch this movie. You know, we didn't see this no, movie. I, I don't think I'd ever heard it. If no, I hadn't read I. Her, uh, Alex's book, I would never have yeah. come to it. I but think I encountered it through first, like, for example, doing film studies, right? Yeah. Then you do reading and you encounter, you just run into certain canonical works. Mm. So there are certain works that if you are into the, like, let's say 10 important films that define what, like the medium of cinema was, the camera, the way that it shoots the world, lighting, cinematography. Peeping Tom just happened to be one of them, right? And in fact, I, I, I have underneath the London Tribune and the Daily Express, you know, awful quotes, a quote from Scorsese, who you mentioned before, mm. who famously said, I think it was around 1990-something, he said, there are two films you need to see, and these two films will tell you everything you need to know about movies and movie making especially. Wow. And he said they are Fellini's Eight and a Half, mm. also one of my favorite movies, and Peeping Tom. So he said Fellini's Eight and a Half teaches you about the joy of cinema, like reveling in that joy, maybe the frustration of it, trying to make something, the colorfulness of people working together. And then he said Peeping Tom teaches you about the obsessive nature of it. And I just thought this wow. was an amazing statement from maybe the greatest filmmaker of the modern era. Mm -hmm. I just want to add something. Now, because I'm, I'm, I'm relatively new to this movie, very new to it, in fact, I wonder if I don't see a little bit more overlap or a little bit more connection between this and Psycho than you. Because both of you, I think, are viewing it in a, you know, very much through an intellectual lens as yeah. well. I also think it happens to be just a really interesting story. Mm. So, for example, the main character at every point, this this guy's engaging, right? Yes, like he, yeah. he's I mean, and can strange. I say what a performance? Uh, it's an it's because a remarkable they were first performance. trying to get some big name actors, mm. and they couldn't land it because they wanted the you know to get the box office. And then I believe he knew the screenwriter, and the screenwriter said to Michael Powell, "You got to try this guy out." And he read for it, and I think Michael Powell said the sort of quiet intensity he had was perfect for the Mark character. The 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 love interest in the movie. She's yeah. absolutely oh, she's amazing. Anna Massey. Anna Massey. So yeah. she absolutely plays. Perfect, right? I mean, I first met her playing a character called Babs in Frenzy, which is interesting because oh, right. she's Babs the 1972 yeah, Hitchcock yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So she's amazing in Frenzy. And I've seen Anna several things, and she's always wonderful. Now, the other person I want to highlight, and this is when I was sitting there going, Are you kidding me? Like the level of suspense, this is Hitchcock at his very best. Was the mum that scene with the mum? Oh my god! And how she's, scary! How and weird is the mum? Yeah. And what about the scene where she's talking to? <laughs> <laughs> she's she, just went, I'm not, I'm not. But but that showdown between yeah. him mm. and the mum, and they're sort of having an intellectual. But verbal see how Hershel, I like what you yeah, said. Yeah. See how on. If we just go back to that psycho comparison, see how Powell is interested in in the intellectual side, which is that why is the mother blind? Yeah. And what is she able to see through a kind of inner lens of the camera, yeah. like an, in, an interior lens that we on the outside can't see? So Powell's always trying to push this idea of 
who is looking, but more importantly, what is looking. Now Hitchcock, he's not. He's going to take the camera out. Michael Powell's going to bring the camera in. But well, I mean, but I sorry, when we get to it, but I, I always yeah. think, oh yeah, this looks like Hitchcock looks like a melodrama. Yeah. Psycho looks like a melodrama compared to this. Yeah. But that scene with the mother and him upstairs, it always reminds me of Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs yeah. when he yes. puts on the glasses and she can't yes. see. I actually saw quite a bit of Silence of the Lambs yep. in Peeping Tom. I, I saw I saw Buffalo Bill mm. with the main with the protagonist in Peeping Tom, just because of that cold, disconnected yep. thing. But you're actually doing horrific things. Yeah. My point of reference for the mother, the way she plays that character, like the blind mother, um, was the mother in The Birds. Yeah, no, I'm ah. seeing that as well. Because yeah. the, the, like, and also the relationship between the son and the mother, which is, you know, there's obviously a lot of subtext about repression. Um, and so I felt that from the mother, that... The mother sees things and is concerned about things, but in other ways has this little coldness to her. And that felt so much to me like the mother from the birds. I, I love that, you know, that, that the, I guess the word I used was like the joust between the mother and, and, yeah. and the protagonist. For me, there is a distinction between that and the way Hitchcock typically treats the female characters. It's not really that intellectual joust. That if mm. there is going to be uh, a discussion, it's more on the comedic level. Yeah. Whereas she was coming at him. And challenging him every step of the way, which I thought was unbelievable. Also, how interesting is it? I mean, I'm sure you'll come back to this a bit later. But the female character Mm. uh, who is famously called by one of the leading scholars in history, Laura Mulvey, as like the object of the male gaze. Mm -hmm. Like Hitchcock's women are there for men to look at, right, and kind of revel in. Um, Sorry, when I was watching Psycho, I just couldn't... uh, I've watched that Hopkins psycho film about him making psycho. Yes. Hitchcock, I think it's called. Um, and every time I watch psycho, I just think of Hitchcock standing there looking at um, the actor through the peephole as well. Well, me out. I mean, there's so much research into, and it's fascinating for anyone, any of our listeners, it's fascinating if you want to look it up. But okay, I'll give you a tip to look up if you're listening. Check out Tippi Hedren's test screenings for the birds. Because it's so creepy. You cannot believe it. Because it's Tippy being directed by Hitchcock, who's just off camera. And Hitchcock's telling yeah. her, like, okay, Tippy, go up to your man. Show him. Like, and it's so, because yeah, he's a disembodied creepy. voice. He's, look, and the level of kind of mm. omniscient power in the scene. And it doesn't surprise me that, you know, two decades later, Tippy Hedron said that she really suffered abuse on yeah. the set of that film. Yeah. Well, Hitchcock yeah. was nuts, though. He was collecting hair samples from his <laughs> leading... His, well, he's also, he kept he's it in a freezer. He's a bit of a creep. Like, yeah. at the end of the... There's an excellent yes. podcast called What a Creep. Yeah. Uh, is, is that right? Yeah, it's yeah, what yeah, a Creep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they did a whole episode on Hitchcock and what he got yeah, up to well, and yeah. how weird he was. But poor old Tippy, not just The Birds, but then she also did that film Raw. <laughs> no, no, Marnie, but she did a movie called Raw? Not with Hitchcock, though? No, not with no, Hitchcock, no, no, okay. but it is also another film where she was da- married to this insane person oh, no. who wanted to shoot with lions without handlers. He was a handler, and there's a scene, and I've watched it. Yeah. It's in a house, and that lions are roaming free. They attack the cast. They ripped off someone's oh, arm wow. in the shooting. Like It's the most insane yes. and exploitative animal, but also exploiting the humans who are acting with the yep. animals. And Tibby did both those films with the birds and the lions. I mean, and the, interesting thing for Hitch- <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing for Hitchcock was a lot of film directors of that era mm. – um, they were obviously the power, right? Like yeah. the director author, so the Hitchcocks. But it wasn't just Hitchcock, there's many people who did this. The difference with Hitchcock was he got off on that stuff. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I'm not joking. But yeah. how many, okay, there how is many a sexual. There, there is a sexual fetishization of the female figure in 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 every. Hitchcock, but he, he right? was also arrogant. He had a tremendous ego. How many directors put themselves in every movie that I they know. film? We'll okay. go on all day yes, with Hitchcock. Yes. Back to back okay. to Peeping Tom. Peeping Tom. Okay, what I want to say about Peeping Tom comes back to the point I made before. The difference with Michael Powley's, he makes one of the first movies I know that's not an experimental movie where the camera is the main character of the movie. Mm. Everything revolves around what is a camera and what can it do? And the nearest point of contact for me with that is a movie some people might know. It's an amazing Russian documentary called Man with a Movie Camera, right? That's what um, I shouted out. I know. Oh, that's what I was going to go, hey, Craig, nice yeah, reference. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, and, and so... Um, when my, it's astonishing to me that Michael Powell could make a film that's ostensibly a genre movie. It's about a killer. It's there's a relationship. There's a love interest. There's a sort of strange mother relationship as well. There's a really nifty suspense plot, as you say, Ash. Mm. Like yeah. you know, it's how are the cops going to catch him? There are even policemen on his tail, right? But then he layers over that this incredibly sophisticated, like bit of film theory. And it doesn't surprise mm. me that the 60s and the 70s, when they wanted to understand what cameras were and what movies were and what they did to us as spectators, doesn't surprise me that, doesn't surprise me that they all said, we've got to do Peeping Tom. And now, if you go and study film studies, you are going to encounter Peeping Tom. You, if you come and do it with us at Sydney Uni, you're probably going to meet it in your first year. Right, when and they come to your office, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just—it's just when I, I invite a student in, I just put yeah. a peeping top yeah. and we sit there. No, no, I'm saying they walk in, and they can't see anyone in there, and then there's just <laughs> an eye moves and a painting, and your eye comes to the window <laughs> to the painting. <laughs> I want to say that it's the first movie I think that gets mainstream attention. Unfortunately, then dies, but gets revived several decades later by Scorsese, by the great authors that came to recognize what it was. Second. The movie, I don't know what you guys thought of it. It's one of the most sophisticated examinations of a character's psychology from this period of cinema. Mm -hmm. Like, I, again, I was taken aback by the subtlety of the way it depicts his relationship to his dad. His dad is filming every moment of his life. And the camera becomes an instrument of violence because the son has internalized this his entire life. I actually think that's you know, one of the most conditioned. That's one of the most disturbing things yes. that I've seen in film in a very okay. long time. Can, this, can I just say I wanna this is like negging the film now, but um, I liked it a lot. The yeah. first time especially. The second time I was less engaged emotionally with yeah. the story. And I think that's the only thing that lets me down. And I also attribute that to the music, which I find really strange. The point is the music in it, it sounds yeah. like it's harking back to silent film. And so the first time you hear it, it's just piano diddling away. And I'm like, oh, that's strange because I would prefer just the sound of a, you know, a flickering um, a reel. Comparing this to Bernard Hermit's score yeah, yeah. for Psycho is a, a hard watch yeah. because you they're like the opposite ends yeah. of the scale. There's someone trying to do silent film era music yeah. in 1960. And it's kind of like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. That's the one thing, like the sound design. I was yeah. like, damn, I wish there was... Why like do you reckon Powell... No, he's done this his whole career. If you look at his color films, yeah. they're always high saturation. Yeah. Incredibly rich primary colors. Why do you... Because I think that's part of the massive aesthetic of this movie. 
Yeah. What do you think the effect is? Like, uh, oh, it reminds me of Jala straight away. I was like, yeah. what is this? Uh, it definitely yeah. does Argenta? feel Jalo. Yeah. What's going on? You know what? I also thought it was like a bit of Jalo. I also thought it was a bit of Hammer Horror. Yeah, You know, right. that tradition of Hammer? Because Hammer was B-grade horror, and it was massive, um, especially, you know, 50s, 60s, and early st- into the 70s. But, but with Hammer, right, and I learned this from a color greatest once when they said, yeah. if you wanted more, I'm sitting in the edit and they, uh, in the color grade, and they go, dude, if you wanted more color, you should have put more color in the frame. Yeah, And right. I think of Hammer, and I go, yes, I can see drapes, I can see yeah. costumes that are colorful. But in this, I'm seeing street lamps being yes. green, and I'm seeing, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and I'm seeing... So it's got that yellow l- feel, Yes, right? it's got it's, the yeah. lighting, which is colorful, not yeah. just the things in the frame are colorful. But I think it's amazing. And, and of course, it's taking everything in that response to television coming out in the 50s was let's turn up the colour in cinema, you know? And he does that so well in this film. I mean, it must be an influence on the Giello, right? Like, it's got to be... Can I um, just say that comparing... Um, the music, it was unfortunate. But comparing the colour versus the black and white of Psycho, this thing pops. This thing really goes off. Yeah. Oh, well, it's like an assault on your sense. It's like what we talked about with the Giello a, a while ago yeah. now, that it's kind of an assault to your senses, especially to your visual sense. And so when I watch it, the other thing is there's a very knowing shooting everything on a set. Mm. So there's a very clever meta aspect to this movie that... You're not going to see in Hitchcock probably, well, not to this level, ever in his career. And you're not really going to see it till the 70s. But the idea that the movie is commenting on the fact that it's a movie about making a movie. So that when they shoot exteriors, yeah, there are a few like exteriors that look like street scenes, but most of it sets. And, you know, the sets look so obvious. Mm. You know, they're shooting it probably at Pinewood, right? So there's a knowing... There's, there's a knowing dialogue between the set in which they're shooting this movie and the set that they've used to shoot Peeping Tom. And that to me, again, is that's decades ahead of where people like Tarantino would be using rear projection just to signal the fact that this is a kind of artificial background, right? Or the way Brian De Palma would use rear projection wow. in a movie like Body Double. Mm. Peeping Tom's 25 years ahead of that. For some reason, I don't know what it is, something in my head, but I kept yeah. thinking of The Matrix when I was watching yeah, Peeping yeah, yeah. Tom. Well, but maybe it's about the artifice. It's like the, the, I think it's the artifice and it's the use of the set as something constructed. Yeah, right. right? I think Powell was also disadvantaged, though, because he came from that whole melodramatic thing. Now, I know you were saying that in Psycho, but I'm seeing in Peeping Tom even in the midst of all the weirdness. Like, I was seeing, like, for example, I was seeing Dialing for Murder in yeah. terms of the, the, the set and the interiors of everything. Mm. Um, yeah, so I guess I, it's a sad thing what happened to Powell as a result yeah. of this. Yeah, terrible. But I just put myself back in 1960. This is such a European <laughs> movie. Yeah. And where was it ever going to find an audience? How was this ever well, going to work? What about like opening scene? I'll do business and I'm do the very famous opening scene. But what about the woman just takes her clothes off? Mm. What, like 1960? Now I know that. Janet Lee takes the clothes off in Psycho, but she's got like a full bra, it's black and white, they're not going to shoot too close. This is a sex worker that he has lured into a place to kill her, which he's going to do through a viewfinder. It's still, it's as impactful as it's any amazing. found footage, yeah. murder, man bites dog. It's, yes. just, it's still as strong, yep. just that you opening You know, like, like, tick, 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 tick. Yeah, that yeah. is just so stunning and it's eerie great. It's great. All right, we should move on to Psycho and then we can keep comparing these two films. Take two. Our second film, 
was released only two months after our first film. Psycho represents a pivotal moment in the career of director Alfred Hitchcock. After spending much of the 1950s working with famous movie stars on luscious locations and big budget spectacles, Alfred was inspired by the recently released novel by Robert Bloch to dial back the production excesses and create what many believe to be one of the greatest horror films of all time. The story begins with an engrossing tale of the real estate secretary Marion Crane, played by Janet Leigh, who is embroiled with a hardware store owner in a secret affair. When she is entrusted to deposit $40,000 into her boss's account, she instead flees her city of Arizona and finds herself pulling off the highway on a stormy night at the Bates Motel. There she meets a quirky hotelier who is obsessed with his mother and taxidermia. I don't think I've ever heard Norman described as quirky before. That's a new one for he's, me. A, he's a quirk. He's an oddball. <laughs> he's well, dangerous. He's an oddball, but quirky is like, I don't know. Kramer. <laughs> Quirky's like, oh, you, you're crazy, but you mean well. Hey, look, if they just, if, if at the end of the night she went, he was a little quirky and he didn't kill her, yeah. I reckon that you, you could summarize him that way. <laughs> Midway through the movie, Marion is murdered as she showers, which triggers an investigation that also ends in murder. Eventually, Marion's lover and sister find their way to the hotel where they discover that Norman Bates has been doing the killings whilst dressed as his mother. Norman is arrested and a psychiatrist explains the mind-bending revelation to a crowded police station. Unlike our first film, this one is shot in black and white, with the amazing eye of Saul Bass being lent to the visual style of the film. The other game-shifting element of the production is the music by Bernard Herrmann, who created one of the most iconic scores of all time. Hitchcock himself did most of the publicity and trailers of the film and famously instructed cinemas not to allow any audience member into the theatre once the movie had begun. It was a box office success and became one of the most profitable films of all time. Herschel, we've been enjoying this film for years, so what's your take on Psycho? Okay, I, I'm going to guess that most of our listeners out there have got a decent understanding of Psycho. If you don't, you're probably one of the outliers. So I'm going to spend less time. I'm, I'm going to spend less time Sorry in talking about, about it. About dude. it. <laughs> in your I'm going to spend, spend less time talking about you know the the well-known story of Psycho and stuff like that. I want to spend more time in talking about why I think it's an amazing achievement. There's also tons of documentaries and yeah. all There's about. There's so much information about this movie. Say you could. You could fill a major library with just books on Psycho. Yeah, it's probably the most written about, uh, or at least, yeah, talked about. So it's interesting that I'm going to start, Bruce, where you started, Mm. with a couple of the reviews. We could be forgiven for forgetting, and I think most people would would be in the same boat, thinking that everybody loved this movie. It was immediately thought to be one of the great classics of all time. In fact, that wasn't the case at all. Um, When Psycho was released... For the most part, it it was released to mixed reviews, some quite poor reviews. And I wanted to include a couple of samples. And in fact, I think it's got something in common with Peeping Tom a little bit to that extent. People called it a gimmick movie. Um, People called it morally objectionable. (laughs) C.J. Lejeune of The Observer not only walked out before the end, she then resigned her post as The Observer's critic. Based upon this movie. What? what? Yes, Is yes. What are you That's talking true. about? I, I, I was reading into this. I was reading into it. CJ Lejeune. She quit a job as a critic 
because of the movie. Well, look, man, maybe she got another job opportunity and it coincides with the story. <laughs> I don't know. But I'm saying Wait. that the movie was criticized upon release by some high-standing wow. people. Calling and it a gimmick film, is it cracks me up because I think of like William Castle. Yeah. You know, he made that movie, The Tingler, where there was yes. an electroshock or a skeleton yeah. fell from the roof. Like that stuff was happening back yeah. then in cinemas to Can get Can you imagine saying in. that now, that Psycho was a gimmick I film? Mean, Remember when Gus Van Sant made the remake and yeah. people thought... Oh. That was a gimmick film. That's a nut that's job. A that's crazy. But I don't, maybe like three or four people saw that movie at the cinemas. Yeah. Like everyone... The idea of a gimmick movie, I can kind of see that, right? Because... It's probably got three or four of the most famous shots in history, mm. and they're really elaborate. And you know, there's lots of stuff on this about how they had to build certain, con- like Arbogast's death. Mm. It's just one of the greatest. Yeah, but see, I'm including this not in a favorable gimmick way. I yeah. think people were saying Hitchcock's lost his mind here, and he's after the cash. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm saying. saying you could see it as gimmicky, but they don't get that Hitchcock was always into the. Ex- All of Hitchcock is experimental. Yeah, like all of it. But I want to say, look, I guess for me, like at the very least, this movie, 1960, like it's a significant departure for Hitchcock because consider this run that he's had, right? Rewindow, 1954, To Catch a Thief, 1955, Vertigo, 1958, North by Northwest, 1959. Wow. Now, if you take three of those movies, some people speak of them as three of the best movies like of the century. Yeah. But you're in that conversation. To Catch a Thief... I it's obviously not up to that standard, but it's no, a hell of a lot it of fun. It's not, I mean, it's not quite as good, but it's still a marvel. I mean, the guy didn't put a foot wrong in the 50s. It's a significant change in direction mm. for Hitchcock. He comes off North by Northwest, which in scope, in, you know, in intention, mm. it's the ultimate caper movie. But now he drills everything down, he makes it small. And that, to me, is something that I've always really found interesting, actually. So why go smaller? Mm. See, I think Hitchcock had set himself a challenge here. No, he definitely did. He, he talked about it. He intentionally set a bar in that he thought he could focus in, he could use a lens to go smaller. And in doing that, he'd bring the audience yeah. into it himself. Now, there's a lot of background um, statements by Hitchcock in the press conference saying that for the first time, you're going to feel as though you're in the problem. Yep. You're in the, 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 the tension itself. Hmm. And I think that's an achievement. But also, he was super famous because he was the face on TV in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yes. And a lot of people don't know this, but that meant as much to him as his movies <laughs> because this guy was the most self-aggrandizing person you ever get I to always meet. Right? I, I, I recently discovered that The Twilight Zone with Rod Serling's yeah. intros and outros, came after Hitchcock had done it with his... Yeah, so Hitchcock was which blows my mind because I people. thought yeah. that, that Serling had done Twilight Zone and invented that and yep. then Hitchcock just ripped it off. But I didn't realise Hitchcock came first. Yeah, and my sense is... Well, he's talked a bit about this. I mean, if people are interested, there's an amazing book called uh, Hitchcock, uh, a series of conversations with Francois Truffaut. Truffaut yeah, yeah. It's Truffaut. Just sorry, Bruce, I thought you were going to do your book on Hitchcock. <laughs> I was going to go like, here well, we That's go. also another amazing book. Um, but anyway, so he was shooting Alfred Hitchcock Presents. They were doing big productions of those. And the, uh, the goal, the idea that Hitchcock had was, what if I could shoot a movie like this? We shoot it really kind of low, like low budget, Economically, mm. but we make it for the big screen, and like but what he showed exactly, was, you can do that's it. That's my right? take. But you maybe see, that's yeah. part of the trick of it as well, because you're watching black and white TV, you're watching his yep. show. They're, they're small drama, almost like 
just one step up from Colgate Theatre or, or a film yeah. to play, yes. and then it's like, okay. So when you go into a, TV, a film and it looks like that, you're not ready for that shower sequence. You're not no, ready for a no. hundred shots in a, in like a second or I mean, you know ten a, seconds. That is a wonderful point because I gotta say, if you've watched Alfred Hitchcock presents, I'm sure all of us have watched mm. a fair bit of it, um, and I just started watching some recently, and they're brilliant, right? But the interesting thing is, the opening sequences of uh, Psycho play a bit like an episode, mm. right? But that, you, and that's yeah. the point I'm trying to make. It's yeah. very intentional. Yes, he had pulled back. Look, he can do anything he wants yes, at this point. I can point. make anything he wants, right? So he pulls back and he starts you with the mundane world. Yeah. And what he does then is he, he I guess he starts a level of disruption that is so jarring mm. that it's something, I think it's truly novel. Interestingly, I think Hitchcock had his head in this for quite a while and he'd seen some other stuff. Um, in researching for this pod, I came across a, a statement that he'd made in a press conference and he said, if you're interested in what to expect from Psycho, think of Le Diabolique. And did he actually say he that? He did say that. Wow. Now, oh, for our listeners out there, if you looked that up, 1955 Le Diabolique, one of the great, great thrillers, mysteries that you can watch. Mm. It's short, and like Psycho, it's incredibly taut. You couldn't really cut anything out of it yeah. because everything, you might say, for example, do we need the conversation between Marion and her lover about you know, the fact that you know, can they make a life for themselves outside this? Well, you do need the conversation yeah, because she's going to lose all of it eventually in the most horrible of circumstances. Not only that, you need to see Marion in her underwear. <laughs> no, that's the main... That, <laughs> what I'm, 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 I'm Hitchcock serious. has entered the chat. Here we go. <laughs> no, it's really important that... Wait, why? As, well, because it's important to, to construct this woman as like something we desire. Right, and there's yeah. uh, like a really transgressive thing. Like this is Janet Lee in a bra and panties on the screen <laughs> in the opening sequence. That's like unheard yeah, of. Yeah, it's, right? it's, it's, it's something. pretty out there. But so I thought you were going to say because we need to see that she has a hope and dream, and then it gets destroyed, which is tragic. I mean, yeah, this, well, the, hey, yeah. there's that. Yeah, but I'm sorry. talking about it. Sorry, you're, you're Laura Mulvey in it. Well, yeah, because yeah. what I'm saying is. Hitchcock, well, the thing that makes Hitchcock unlike almost anybody else is that this is not a guy making apologies for the fact that when you go to the movies, the prime reason is to be aroused. I don't mean necessarily sexually aroused, although that's part of it, mm -hmm. but it's to be aroused in many ways. So Hitchcock's going to go, yeah, hey, that does a good plot thing, but if we can show her sort of semi-naked, that also allows me to bring the spectator into that space I want them to be yeah, in. I, I mean, but, absolutely. But he, does he, that. he does this in every film. But I think that's a method he's got you, to bring the spectator in to what's an, incredible, an incredibly constrained environment. It's almost it's claustrophobic is what I've got in yeah. my notes here. Yeah. Um, the other thing is the opening to it and the juxtaposition of the opening with what comes later, it's very mundane, right? I mean, she's involved in an affair, but that was kind of how people, that was like a titillation that people had mm -hmm. back then in yeah. melodrama. Yeah. Then from there... She steals money, and that's interesting. So what, do we have a North by Northwest cape on our hands? Because yeah. nobody knows what's coming. To think that there's going to be a murder by Norman Bates in the manner that it occurs, mm. it must have come across, and especially Janet Lee being, what, the equivalent of Julia Roberts at well, the Janet time Lee or something like, like the, that? You know, being unheard of that she'd be killed. So, so it'd be crazy. Who, who'd, 
Who would put her name up in lights? Yeah. And then she's gone in, what, 25 minutes? So it's a brilliant narrative. It's also a brilliant technique. Using Bernard Herrmann, using um, the cinematography. I, I'd forgotten. I hadn't seen it for a, uh, maybe 15 years. And I'd forgotten how engaging it is up until she gets to... Yeah. To, like, oh, it's great. The, the cop I mean, following her, her selling the car, all of that stuff is like, oh, this is tans. Yes. Everything. I love... What about when the cop knocks on the window? Yeah. And, and then the music just kicks in. What about the reflection so, of the glasses? Oh, it's fantastic. Everything is exciting. Everything yeah, is tense. This is the difference between Hitchcock and Powell, right? Powell is operating much more on a level. Yes, form is fundamental to the film, but it's a very different sort of new wavy experimental thing. Hitchcock's working in the tradition of Hollywood and it's still so innovative, so original. Now, keeping that in mind, the mundane giving way to something that is dark and dysfunctional mm. and, and horrific. Um, going back to the block novel, Hitchcock, I think, was interested because this was a person who loved his mother, had a shrine to his mother while he was killing people. Um, the, <laughs> the concept of the mother is a trope throughout Hitchcock. Yeah. So Hitchcock saw a connection there that he could use a vehicle to really create a new type of film. This kind of, you know, that's what people are calling it, a horror film. So this mundane world that he starts with and then the juxtaposition to what he introduces is the technique, I think, that sets up Psycho to be ultimately... I think one of Hitchcock's most successful movies. I guess for me, it's not in my top three because there's other movies that I what? named. No, it's not in my top three. For I, no, 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 not in Hitchcock. I don't even know if it's in my top five. What is happening? No, hey, I love this movie, but but that, <laughs> what? that Are tells you us serious? something. But that tells hey, us something Craig, about we're Hitchcock. We're talking about Alfred Hitchcock, man. This guy. What are your three? Hitchcock? Okay, North by Northwest. Yeah. Rope, Vertigo, my top three. Oh, Easy. Rope, no way. All right, go on, Bruce. <sighs> Name three better than Psycho then. Not Rope, sorry. What did I say, Rope? You, you said crazy? Rope. North by Northwest. <laughs> North by You're North, crazy. North by Northwest. Rear Window, Vertigo. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Rear Easy. Window, I reckon. Definitely Vertigo. Uh, the Birds, for sure. Um, really, The Birds? I wouldn't have... The oh, birds no, in no way. The bird. no oh, way. forget it. Are you kidding? The Birds? Nah, come on. You guys are nuts. Um, there's so many Shadow of a Doubt Yeah, fantastic Shadow of a Doubt Lady Brilliant Saboteur oh, We haven't even mentioned Rebecca Rebecca oh, that's amazing Are you Fre- kidding, right. Rebecca? And, f- and for people getting to Lady Hitchcock When he goes back to the UK Fren- Frenzy Frenzy is a fantastic nah, movie. Nah. Now I want to say a couple of things quickly Psycho is crap <laughs> Anthony, <laughs> Anthony Perkins For a person who was relatively unknown at the time Is remarkable yeah. in this movie mm-hmm. Talk Now our audience is going to know about the shower scene, and we're going to know about when when the private investigator falls down the staircase because there's such great um, creations. You're not doing shower scene. No, for no, mise en no, no, scene. I'm not going to do great, anything like great, that for great. for mise en scene because I think it's too well known already. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know it, go and have a look at it out there because it's brilliant. But what I want to say, I guess, is that Anthony Perkins, if you watch him, for example, in the parlor scene with with Janet yeah, Lee. Policy that's remarkable. That's unbelievable. Um, Bernard Herman's score, Craig, you you, yeah. you led up front with this. That is just worth its weight in gold. You, you can't beat that. It's also for the complexity of the score. So, you know, we've got the famous, mm. uh, the, the strings, right? The violin. Mm-hmm. Um, then we've got um, the sort of suspense music, right? Yeah. That, that accompanies Janet Lee all the way driving through. Driving. The yeah. driving. But then what a few people know is there's another entire motif that goes through the film. Um, and comes to fruition in the vi- final scene, which is called an atonal piece of music because it has no center. So it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. That is astonishingly rare in 1960. It became a staple of like the Giallo and, you know, mm. some of the stuff we, you, we, we saw with Argento. 
But to say that a Hollywood movie was going to let a guy do an atonal score, which just sounds odd, right? But it fits so beautifully. And it's like a match made in heaven. It's the great filmmaker and one of the great you know, music mm. thinkers. And Herman had actually sourced some of his earlier work, which he'd made um, when I was reading about the, the particular score that he had. And that earlier work was called The Murder. So it was something yeah. that he had on his mind. It was quite, quite interesting that, that he adapts that uh, for Psycho or yeah, aspects right. of it. I want to finish off by saying... If our listeners haven't seen, or you probably even haven't heard of, the fact that there is a sequel to Psycho, Psycho oh, 2, 1983. Yeah. Psycho is great. So Na- good. 1983, Anthony Perkins returns with a fantastic cast. Robert Loggia is in it. Mm. I think it's one of the best horrors of the 80s, yeah. and yet nobody talks about it. Tarantino says that as well. That's so one of his favorites. That Psycho is my too. film recommendation to everybody listening to this episode. Going, I don't know how hard it's going to be to find it. Try to find Psycho 2, and you will have a great time. For 100, it's about 110 minutes. Yeah. You will have the time of your life watching that movie. I yeah. think it's directed by an Australian, Richard Franklin. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, he yeah. did some excellent Aussie horror movies. Yeah, yeah. He was such a, um, a huge fan of, of Hitchcock. But he also directed ah. Patrick, the guy oh, in the bed. Oh, that's which, right. Because yep. Tarantino is always talking about Richard Franklin's movies. Yeah, yeah. And the way that he was able to... In fact, Tarantino's not a Hitchcock fan. So the way that he claims he was able to take Hitchcock's style but make it better. He all did uh, road games with um, the daughter of... Uh... Yeah, right. He also directed FX2. Wait, Richard Franklin directed FX2? Uh-huh. That's not a terrible movie, Craig. It's, all right, it's all actually right. a decent movie. <laughs> I'm not both, making that both, up. I'm both saying. the all FX right. movies Check are out quite FX2. good. It's not really bad. good. Brian Denny, Brian, Brian Brown, Brown, the two Brian's. <laughs> All right, shout out for Richard Franklin. <laughs> Two have never been better. And better. a shout out for Psycho 2. See it if you can. Let's move on to our miss on scene. Is on scene. Now it's time for our miss on scene where we zoom into one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Bruce. What have you chosen for us for Peeping Tom? Well, I'm going to take one of the most famous scenes, I think, in the history of movies. Not when the film was released because it so shocked people. If you go back to the mm. review lines I read before. Um, but it set a bit of a template for what would come afterwards. So the very famous opening scene, this is the pre-credit sequence, and it is the killer, Mark, and we're now going to watch one of his killings, and that introduces us to the plot of the serial killer. We actually don't see him at all. No, that's true. We don't see him at all, which means that the entire sequence is us looking through the viewfinder of a camera with a cross on it. Mm. Now, to a person who hadn't seen the movie, like yeah. me, it was completely disconcerting so much to the, to, to the extent that I was wondering if I was like interpreting the movie correctly mm. because I didn't know what the hell was going on. Yeah. So then I took it back and I watched the opening scene again and then I kept going yeah. with it. Yeah. Uh, it was just really... And, it was, it's, and you get that whir of the camera in the background. And so... It's all, it's not, I don't think, it's, from memory, it's not a single shot, but it's a series of long shots where we're going to stay within the camera. And the whole point of the sequence is to keep you looking through the camera. So think about how powerful that is as a way of, like, thinking about the subjective shot, right? The point of view shot. So Hitchcock, because I know you're not doing the shower scene, but think no. about the way Hitchcock gets us into that point of view shot, right? Anthony Perkins, through the peephole, cut to... I view points through the people, and our what we uh, infer from that is now I'm looking through his eyes. Standard move to get a point of view shot, right? 
Michael Powell goes one step further. It's the eye looking through a viewfinder of a camera because he wants the camera to be present. He follows the, the woman. She's a sex worker there in a street in, in London. And it's so disconcerting because she looks down the barrel of the camera as he's walking toward her. So without knowing anything, mm. there's something incredibly just violent in that gesture that a person's looking at a camera and I've got the power of looking through the camera. Now, we're not going to get a chance to talk about it yet. We don't need to. But the idea in film studies, there was a huge idea and it came and became famous in the work of Laura Mulvey that cinema, in, uh, certainly the cinema of Hitchcock, engaged in a kind of voyeurism. I look at something and it can't look back at me. So the killer looks at her and she looks back at this person, but he's not, you know, we don't see her looking back. All we do is just see through his eyes. And didn't you get a feeling that, like there's such a sense of power in that? Like it's kind of yeah. shot slightly high to low angle. If you find her, you go slowly toward her. And now if you've seen the movie before, it's 10 times as creepy when you watch it a second time. It's Because it's you very know that this is a serial killer walking with a camera that's got a massive blade on it. And of course mm. the blade, like we don't have to, but that's obviously it's weird. a phallic symbol as well. It's right? very confronting. And the other thing is, it's both confronting, but it also, it's also, I guess, disorientating because you feel that it masks the identity of the killer. Yes. Because you're viewing through the but viewfinder. But to you as well. But not only that, you now are internalized in the viewing position of the killer. So when you're watching it, say for the first time you're in a cinema in 1960, you're walking around, you don't know what's going on. You think it's risque that he's picking up the sex worker to go into her flat. But when she starts taking her clothes off and then looks up and she's terrified and you realize this is a moment of killing... I can't imagine what that must have felt like for an mm -hmm. audience. It felt weird to me when I was watching it for the tenth time the other day. Well, right? it was a career killer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, and the thing is, that's that what really got murdered. I I would like to think that the reason people, okay, there, yes, there were controversial things around Psycho, and some people couldn't accept it, right? But at the same time, the response to Peeping Tom was so over the top, so hyperbolic, like get that thing away from me. And I think the reason is where Hitchcock gives you point of view, Michael Powell inserts the camera, and the camera creates that sense of being empowered and really violent toward the woman. And I think that's what he plays on, and it's the kind of thing that film studies picked up yeah. in book after book and article and after article. And isn't there a study, I don't know, or theories about the ca it makes you complicit in the murder yeah, by completely. watching it, you know, because you have consumed it. You are, if you're still looking and you're not hitting stop. I mean, stop, you feel it, right? It's your fault. Yeah. If you didn't and, stop I mean, it. we're going to see bits and pieces of that in so much horror to come, right? Like, even think of one of my favorite of the low-budget stuff was something like Paranormal Activity, mm. where it uses the video footage and to put you into a position of watching through a medium. The minute you put a medium between me and what I look at, it takes me out of the world and into this very strange, uncanny space of looking through a technology. That's Michael Powell, he's like 30 years ahead of his time. But where would people like David Lynch be? Okay, I'm thinking Lost Highway, where the mm. videotape arrives in the mailbox and they put it on and suddenly, they're, you know, I don't know if you remember, but yeah, they're yeah. watching the screen and the screen is a, a video of them in yeah. the room. Yeah. And, you know, and the idea that Michael Powell was theorizing the, like, the effect of a camera in 1960. I mean, 
and in ways that were totally different to the Russian filmmakers of the 20s and 30s who also did that. But this guy was attaching to violence and psychology. That's like decades ahead of its time. All right. Mise en scène. Herschel, what have you turned for us from Psycho? I think people are going to expect me to talk about either the shower scene or where the private investigator gets stabbed and we've got the camera moving down the staircase with him, which is really an, an incredible bit of innovation from Hitchcock. Can I just say one quick thing? If anyone is interested Here we go. in an incisive analysis of that sequence, look no further than the art of pure cinema, Hitchcock and his imitators. Right, but who wrote that? That was uh, a little-known person called Bruce Isaacs. Ah, Dr. Yeah. Bruce Isaacs. Well, um, you can get that anywhere now on yeah, the internet. Yeah, you can get it, yeah. You can okay. go to Amazon and give I mean, it to Jeff Bezos. Please buy a copy. Hardly it? anyone's bought yeah. a copy. Please buy a copy. <laughs> okay, look, let's get back into the important stuff. Um, now, to all of our listeners, to the millions who are listening, um, I'm not going to do any of those scenes. And, in fact, I'm not going to do one of the, you know, are you going to do the parlor scene? No, I'm not going to do the parlor okay. scene. I'm not going to do one of oh, 10 now scenes. Now I'm actually intrigued. I'm yes. not going to do one of 10 scenes that you might pick um, as some of the most famous scenes in all <laughs> this of is gonna be film. You've set this up. This yeah, is going to be no, so I, good, I, Look, man. I'm really worried because yeah. it's not even that good. <laughs> um, I've actually chosen to do something a little bit different. We're always picking on a scene that we love or a technique that we think changed things. I'm actually going to pick on mm. a scene that I think is the only weak spot in the entire film. I know what you're doing. I love it. It's the only weak spot in the entire film. Now, I set up this entire thing by saying I thought Hitchcock's intention, he set himself a challenge, was to go from big to small using an increasingly focused lens to make it claustrophobic and constrained so that we would be dragged into it ourselves. And in some way, I see overlap with Powell, but Powell uses the the, the viewfinder and he goes one You're killing me. What scene are you doing? (laughs) Okay. So when we get... When we get the the reveal, okay, when we know that Norman Bates has been dressing his mother and he's in fact taken on the persona of his mother due to psychological dysfunction, we move to a scene where Norman is sitting outside of the the, the room with the blanket over him and he's in the personality of his mother. Mm. And at that point, we get a particular sequence of exposition from the psychiatrist. Yes, yes. Now... Okay. Uh, you know, there's a part of me that agree, would like to think. Agree on the weakest moment of yeah. the film. Okay, now what That's I'm going to say is... That's the worst sequence in all of Hitchcock. <laughs> and you know why it's one of the weakest sequences? Because it's really Christopher Nolan in its in its, yeah. in its, in its inception, let me say, to I mean, use that word. I mean, just it so perfectly. Because what Hitchcock, I think, needed to do, or what he was hoping for, and look, it wouldn't surprise me if there was some studio hand involved here, even though Hitchcock had signed off on everything, it so jars me, and I've seen this movie many times, but every time oh. I come to this scene, I think to myself, man, what were you thinking? Why did you think <laughs> yeah. this was going to play? No, I know the answer to that. It was such a radical idea at the time, yeah. the idea of split personality, yeah. That, yeah. Us, that, that Norman... Because you know what you said before when Norman has taken on the persona of, of his mother? Something like, in fact, that's not the case at all. At the end, the idea is... There is no more Norman. Remember the psychiatrist? Yes, says, sorry. There it is, is no just Norma. Yeah. Right? So I think that idea was so counterintuitive and strange that I think Hitchcock himself felt, I better have somebody explain what the hell's going on here. But it's it's like a, a filmmaker who paints themselves into a corner yeah. and then goes, the only way out of this is just to say it. But it's like, I get the problem. I get the dilemma. Because yeah. if you start to see that idea to the audience, you destroy the suspense. Yep. If you start to say there's such a thing as split personality anywhere in the film, yeah. all of a sudden you mean, they you know. Because you start to suspect, right? That's right. You yeah. then work out that Norma is Norma. Uh, look, you know? I think, Craig, yeah. you've made an important point there. Hitchcock is in a conundrum here. It's hard to know what you should do. 
But I, th I still think the method he chose was so heavy-handed in basically giving <laughs> yeah. the, the, the psychiatrist <laughs> yeah. so much screen time, it turned into something. Did, yeah. did you feel like it's a bit of a lecture? You know what it reminds me? Yeah, no, it's, no, it's like, exactly like that. It's, it's like it's the scene like in lecture. Elephant Man where um, they, they bring him in and they stand him up and yeah. then they, they to the Royal London Society of Doctors. Yeah, but see, but that works within that narrative. No, of course. Yeah, I'm not saying that's no, a bad no, one, no, you're but saying that's, that's what a great it's scene. like. Because yeah. that is exactly what it's like. And it's painful to watch because the psychiatrist also is performing in a very TV managed exactly, kind of way. Yeah, exactly. And that's very hard to watch. Now, have you ever tried this? And I've only tried this recently because we're preparing for <laughs> okay. the pod. Have you ever tried this? You get to the reveal and you cut to the scene and they're sitting in the room and it's basically a debrief by a psychiatrist with the cops around. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And he's going, no, but not for him, but for her. It's all yeah. over the top. My worst moment right? is when he goes, oh, so it was, and he goes, yes. And no, and I can't handle that. Man. At thing. that point, I, I so hit off. So, what I want everybody to, uh, and the folks listening to us as well, try this. When the reveal occurs, you'll see it cut to a scene where there's a bunch of people in a room. <laughs> Fast forward at that point, go all the way through to where the camera zooms in on Norman yes. with the blanket, and the fly is, and he's oh, speaking best. as Norma, and it's quite disconcerting to listen to Norma speaking yes. while speaking about mundane things. Mm. I'm not even going to interfere. Yeah. I don't need to interfere with that fly. So if you skip the exposition, the, the Basil exposition in, the, <laughs> in that yeah. little previous part and you bookend the movie or you end the movie yeah. Yeah. with that then final shot, film. then you are truly working with something yeah. disconcerting. Can, and can I also say that the atonal Bernard Herrmann score comes in only at the moment of Norma. Mm. So when Norma says, you know, I wouldn't hurt a fly, that score comes over. And it's so disconcerting. But it's so undone by the stupidity of what we've just watched. I think it's interesting we've got uh, Peeping Tom to compare this to because there is a scene in Peeping Tom in the film studio where a psychologist is brought in yes. or a psychiatrist to, um, to watch the film being made because the woman has been terrorised. Yes. And is now the actor, the lead yeah, actor, and keeps actually, going back. So they're standing on, and then they go up on a crane together. The DP, the, well, yeah. our, our hero, the director of photography, moves up on the crane together with him. And they have this discussion yeah. about fear. I knew your father. And does all of the stuff that mm. Hitchcock does in that last moment after he's blown his load, so to speak. We're doing it in, in Peeping Tom at a different point in the film. And it impacts so differently. It just and it sets works so up. much better. It's much better in, in Peeping, Peeping Tom. Tom. Yeah. I also think... You know, it's a strange thing in Hitchcock that he wanted to shoot in expositions because it's quite static. Mm. It's just a bunch of people sitting in a room. But even in Peeping Tom, remember when Mark decides, I want to talk to this guy and, and, and try and learn something about yeah. it? And he puts them on the... He, he gets... Oh, yeah, first thing, it's up. Yeah, he puts yeah. them on the crane and they lift. Now, I mean, for a, a filmmaker as smart as Hitchcock, who had done this in his whole career, mm. I just don't know why he doesn't put some life into the sequence. It's spectacular in Peeping Tom because they rise to the ceiling yes. above everyone. It's brilliant. Like, and it's done so well. But then he works and that into the plot later, remember, where he drops the pen or whatever. Yes. What, what yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, that's a great point as well. There's no point to the exposition scene in Psycho apart from the exposition. And that's like one of the first rules of exposition. You cannot have... Just an exposition. But when you look scene. at that, that's what happens in Alfred Hitchcock Presents and, and Twilight yeah. Zone and stuff. They come out at the end and go, well, that was fascinating. Here's the explanation. Yeah. So I, so in, it's kind of riffing a bit on that. Maybe. Yeah, but I, I don't know if it's like meta trying to be clever. Yeah. I just think it's. it's so it, 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 either way, it does not work, right? Mm. So it's yeah. interesting then. So I, we, we've got a mise en scene, which in a perfect world, 
I think would literally be on the cutting room floor and you'd have yeah you you truly would have a classic then then you've got something that's pretty shocking actually yep. if you well if you think out. about it no one would have you you would finish the movie and I mean maybe to, not to this level but I remember vividly first seeing I think actually we were in Europe and we watched Mulholland Drive yes yeah and when that ends it's mm. like wow I I, I I need to understand what's going on. I can't, but I need to let this wash over me. I wonder if that might not have been a similar effect for for certain audiences in 1960. I I'm not exactly sure what's happened here, but what an impact that was. You know, it's so visceral, and then what you do is you strip away the viscerality of it by making it, but what well, just by making mm. it exposition. I'm going to explain the whole thing to you. So it's. It's possibly a result of the fact that so much time has moved on, and I. But I view that scene as tremendously dated, and maybe it's not Hitchcock's fault. Maybe it's a product of 1960. But then when we look at the Powell work, so innovative yeah. that it can't be accepted. So is that the is that the trade off well, that Hitchcock well, had to make? I was just going to say that's the trade off, right? Because mm-hmm. Hitchcock rationalizes the whole thing and reassures us a bit that oh, what is a weirdo? But at the end of um, <laughs> At the uh, end of Peeping Tom. At the end of Peeping Tom. He's not, he's an absolutely sympathetic figure. Well, he completes his documentary by killing himself. By killing himself. What a mad ending. I mean, and it's, but it, there's something very beautiful in that final mm. sequence, right? And for example, the Helen character never turns on him. She's in love with him. And she, in fact, says to him, show me these things you've been filming. Mm. That's quite, you know. I mean, that's pushing it way beyond anything. I'd like to give an alternate point of view. My friend Belinda King, a screenwriter. Mm. I mean, you said she didn't like it. She watched both films with me, and she was so angry at Peeping Tom. She thought it was pathetic, like just badly. She didn't connect. Yeah, no, she thought. Did she say that it needed to end up in a Pakistani (laughs) (laughs) sewer? She said, look, that. Helen character, why does she love him? You're being ridi- this is ridiculous. Yeah. This doesn't make sense. Forget it. This guy's obviously a creep. Get the hell away from. You know, it just was straight yeah. away. Whereas in Psycho, she didn't have that. She f- she was able to connect the whole time because you don't expect Norman's murder. You know, it's yeah. all logical. I mean, it doesn't I, I rely just, on. I was that, sympathetic know. toward Mark. Yeah, like I didn't think he was a creep. I but just, I think I that's what it relies. It's, it's kind of like right? a Phantom of the Opera. It's kind of like yes. a yeah. Well, if you get behind this idea that this poor guy. You know, blah, 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 blah. But then it's like, yeah, but if you're a woman and you meet this guy and you have, I don't know, 10 seconds with him, you're like, okay, bye. You're nuts, dude. <laughs> <Okay>. I'm out of here. Like, it's not in the mode no, but of being sympathetic. No, but is, isn't there an aspect of, like, the Edward Cezanne's? You're nuts. Yeah, but, but you that's, gotta, you, know, you know what I mean? It's yeah. a sexy-looking, you know, young man who's kind of yeah. mistaken and understood. This guy's just a creepazoid that lives upstairs, <laughs> and you don't really, you know, he's got film reels. Okay, a little but, weird. But that's a testament to that. But that's a testament to Good. That's a testament to how good she is, though. Because yeah. at no point did I, mean, I not the relationship, I, I was just going to say, it's so believable, yeah. right? Mm. I felt for her, and in fact, I've got to say, I wish the movie was a bit longer and they had a few more scenes with them together. Or maybe they're, they're so great. Maybe right? they could add a sequel. Unfortunately, gonna, <laughs> I'd like to shout out to another film. I'm going to get to you guys real soon um, with this film, Twisted Nerve. It's, oh yeah, I need to see that. It's Britain. It's British sixties. Um, it features the score that Kill Bill has the whistling theme, but the whole thing is. I think it's Bernard Herman, and it's amazing. The score is amazing. So Bernard Herman, yeah, yeah. Wow. But it, it's it's a good parallel for Peeping Tom. It's like someone a few years later going, "Hey, let's do something similar," which is about a creepy kid. But there are elements in it where 
nowadays you it hinges on something that you go, well, that's been disproven, and now yeah. this looks really um, anti-ableist. Yeah, okay. And it, it's, oh, okay, you know, got it. It's yeah, quite yeah. stuff where it would be hard to watch Even now. a bit Silence of the Lambsy. You know, yeah, but it, there, it's some fascinating choices by this guy who pretends to be, uh, to have, um, well, see, here's the thing, they conf- they, they confuse having Down syndrome and being, uh, what they use the fr- phrase, something like retarded. Yes. And okay. so he does have a brother and then he pretends to be that to infiltrate a house of boarders to get with a young girl that he's fallen in love with at a retail store and pretends to not be all there for the entire oh, film. Oh, wow. And sneaks in and Sounds then falls in love with the mother. It so it's twisted very, nerve. It's twisted right? nerve. Okay. You've got to I'm see it. it up. It's Can an you send me a message? I like will. Send, send send a, put it on WhatsApp. It. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Oh, one other thing I wanted to say is the subjective shot, the point of view that we get in um, Michael Powell mm. is different to the way Hitchcock uses it. And I mentioned before about the camera, right? Mm. But I would like to think that if you look at two sequences that I love, which is the opening to Argento's Deep Red, which we're going to see at the retrospective in a few weeks, mm. and the opening to Halloween. Look at the way it's shot, and yes, it approximates a point of view, but wow, it calls you back to this very staged point of view. Like, it's very strange to be completely trapped in a point of view, and it reminds me of Mike. And I think the influence there of Peeping Tom is clear. Here's a question for you both. Film versus film, which one do you like better? Psycho or I'm, I'm going to get back to Peeping Tom because that's a movie I'm going to watch again and again. Psycho for me is up there. I watch I watch a Hitchcock movie maybe like every six months. I sure. I, yeah. I, that guy is the ultimate storyteller. Oh, but so what are you saying? I, your... I, look, Psycho for me is a masterpiece if you pull out that oh. ridiculous scene. All right. Yeah. Uh, Bruce? Probably still Psycho. I mean, look, the thing about Hitchcock is I don't need to watch Psycho in its entirety. I can just sit and watch Arbogast's death and go and just marvel like at mm. it. So it's different to Peeping Tom, which I think is an ideas film. It's very intellectual. It's, you know, yeah, yeah. Psycho, it's, it's, I just it's enjoy. work. It's I like, find it yes. works. Yes. Psycho, I, I love. And the music connects directly to yeah. my insides. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah here yeah, we yeah, go. Yeah. This is Definitely. perfect. Here's a question for you. Um, we've covered Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm. right? Um, in our very first episode versus Parasite, because we're crazy like that. <laughs> um, but I want to know, they're both, uh, you know, similar roots of Ed Gwyn, the yeah. serial killer who lived with his mom and dug up bodies and yeah. turned furniture out of bones and stuff. L- look at what changes in 14 years between Psycho yes. and Texas Chainsaw I mean, Massacre. I think that's the critical Look at question. the big change there. But look at the importance of Psycho or Peeping Tom yeah. or that moment of like 60s where you're going to get the explosion of the jello, you're going to get Mario Bava going crazy, you're going to get all these genre filmmakers coming out and the influence on people like Toby Hooper is But huge. you've also got, uh, you've got George A. Romero, yeah, you know, Night of the Living Dead, Night Carnival Living Dead. Souls, all of the, um, yeah. those American indie that moved See, I from can't different. I can't say, you know, Texas Chainsaw is better than Psycho, or Psycho's better. I just think they're both marvels. But yeah. just, just think about what happens in 14 years here, yeah. in the last 14 years, between two horror films. The difference between Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the same root um, yeah. idea about a serial killer. But you have a period where one movie, so 1960, you get through to Texas Chainsaw, and you're talking about issue movements and the Vietnam War and the peace movement. So mm. now you're talking about a film that's about class as well. I don't think that that's not really also, in, in Psycho Also, Texas Chainsaw whatsoever. goes to like rural, you know, backwaters America. Mm. And I think that was not fully explored unless it was like really underground stuff in, in the States. Yeah. So that be, that was its own transgressive thing. Like for someone like Toby Hooper to do yeah, that. Yeah, you know what else is true? Like When's the, Deliverance? 
Um, That's like early 70s, 71? 71, 71 I think. Okay, so Texas Chainsaw, you know, it's ripe to keep pushing that. Let's take it as far well, as we it's can. Also, it's the city versus country divide yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the idea but of backwards class, country. But in class, though, the divide know, between society. But you don't see that yeah. in Psycho. No, no. You, know, you don't I see don't that. Think well, he's got, I don't, did he ever do that? Like, I'm trying to think... When was he ever not with the upper middle class? Yeah. Right? I can't remember. No, I can't the only time you see it is if you go 1970s maybe. into Frenzy when he goes into the, oh, into wait, the, the, the poverty. Yeah, the, the, the good guy is the guy down in his luck who can't get a job. Yeah, but that's when, re, when he starts reinventing John himself. Finch. That's when he goes back to the yeah, UK yeah, yeah. to reinvent himself. But when he's in the American phase, he's, he's not interested in slowing it's down. It's either aristocracy or it's upper middle class, right? It's... Mm. L.B. Jeffries, it's Scotty, you know, so all these people. But Texas Chainsaw is like, wow, talk but we about... Also, I guess we had the Vietnam War and all yeah. the footage returning yeah. and influencing what people are ready to look at. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it's, social, it's you know, social upheaval, conflict, uh, class. Yeah. Hitchcock's not interested people in People even that see, at this point, like, Night certainly. of the Living Dead as, as a Viet... You know, yeah. that was the era of the Vietnam-American movie. Every yeah. every movie was in some way trying to figure out how, what we're going to do about this fiasco. And Psycho exists in such a uh, pretty little magical... Yeah. Well, if we think about what we talked about, Back to the Future, yeah. the era of the 50s, right, and the time of, like, success... Um, Achievement in America. Yeah. This is 1960, right on the cusp of that. We don't have like the issues of the Civil War. Vietnam is still five years or six mm. years away. All right. Well, that's it for our celebration of 1960 horror movies that changed the genre. Bruce, you've got a book about Hitchcock. I know we've plugged it. What's it called again? It's called The Art of Pure Cinema. Hitchcock had his imitators. Uh, and you can get it online through Amazon. It's, uh, it's in paperback. And it's got really beautiful, glossy images, color images. Beautiful. No good images. for Psycho, but good for some other films there. On the, <laughs> <laughs> on the next episode, get ready to dry your eyes and still your heart as we look at two amazing love stories with Wong Kar Wai's A Fair Laden, In the Mood for Love, versus Celine Sciamma, Sciamma? Sciamma. Celine Sciamma's Forbidden Lesbian Romance, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Those films are now available on YouTube uh, in Australia, and I'm choking up just thinking about the ending of Portrait an amazing ending. You still haven't seen that, have you? Oh I haven't seen God. it. Oh, wow. I, I haven't You're seen it. You're in for an amazing That was one of the treat. movies that truly affected me in the last several years. Yeah. But can I say that, have you guys seen In the Mood for Love? No, I haven't seen either of these movies, oh, actually. Okay. If Portrait of a Lady on Fire affected me, In mm. the Mood for Love is one of the defining objects of my life. Wow. Okay, okay. And can I just say for fans of Netflix uh, movies, the red, white and blue movie, the, the, the president and the prince in love with each other, gay romance, a uh, big big thing on Netflix right now. Is prince, it? Prince Henry, uh, the character, his favourite uh, movie is In the Mood for Love. No so, way! Yeah, he gets a shout hey, out. That now. is so, so maybe it's returning hey, I always now. make sure I put it on the first year course for students because they, they wouldn't have heard oh, of Wong Kar But, at the end, when we get the unit of study evaluations, I always ask him, hey, just tell us what your favorite movie was. At least a third say In the Mood for Love right. out of 13 movies. Well, there is your homework, In the Mood for Love and Portrait of a Lady on Fire for next week. 
Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen to us as it will help other people to find us and tell everyone <laughs> that you love this and it's your favourite thing as apparently everyone does to you, Bruce. I'm not kidding because I obviously I, I spend a lot of time at Sydney University. Lots of people walk by and go, I just love the podcast. So they send me an email. Wow. This guy from America and uh, said, I just love the podcast. This guy from England sent me a, uh, like a tweet. Well, there you go. So I think nice. um, people in Matinee are spitting in my food because of it. They don't like <laughs> it. I'm just walking down the street, people are giving me high fives. <laughs> yeah. It's unbelievable. I'm carried out of this podcast recording on shoulders each time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I've been Craig Anderson. I've been Bruce Isaacs. I've been Herschel Isaacs. Join us next time for Film vs. Film. Take two. Film vs. Film. Film.